trying to make it right These people won't let me go I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Let me grow, let me go Let me grow, let me go They should know, they should know They should know, they should know I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start my guest bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Ellie Blakesley. Ellie Blakesley, who uses she, her pronouns, is a queer artist, an actor, director, writer, dramaturg, and activist. She recently finished her MFA in collaborative theater in London, and she is a self-professed Shakespeare nerd. Hello and welcome and thank you. (laughs) Thank you. How exciting to be here with you. I'm so jazzed. Okay, first things first. Thank you for the love of Shakespeare because everyone always gives my boy a bad rap and I love Shakespeare. Like I used to read him for fun. I still read him for fun. I'm like, what are you talking about? This language is beautiful. What do you mean? It's beautiful. And it's so interesting. Um, I could, I could genuinely, we could take this whole hour just to talk about Shakespeare. <laughs> so we can't go down that path. I but. know. All I say is like, dur- literally during like high school and middle school, all my friends like, well, you, I just don't get it. I'm like, okay, look at this. Like, let's just pick it apart. I was like, why do you understand? I was, like, oh, I was supposed to be British. I know this. I was like, just listen to the words. I think people shut off. They go, it's going to be hard and I just don't, I'm not going to get it. So they just don't try. And if you just try, just push through it. He makes sense. I promise. He talks a little like Yoda. Like it's all a little out of order, but it makes sense. People, I feel like are just lazy. I'm like, it makes sense. Yeah. It's just, and also like, it shouldn't be taught in English classes. It should be taught in theater classes because it's a play. It's meant to be heard. It's not meant to be read and it's definitely not meant to be read by students who are like trying to sound out words and like don't know the intonation of the poetry. Yeah. Ellie with the hot takes. <laughs> it's like teach, teach theater. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Teach theater. Keep the arts in school. I'm like, you know what? Not wrong. That's true. Um, so I always like to start with how we've met, but we've never met in person. We are Instagram pals. And so that's true. I'm just like super jazzed that the internet exists because it has brought fantastic people into my life. So yeah, folks, if you want to just come on and chat with me and be a semi-stranger, that's totally fine. <laughs> Everyone's like, how do you just like make internet friends? I go, it just, it just happens to people. I you don't just start talking to people. Just start chit-chatting. Um, um, go ahead. I found you through Danielle Ackles, who Sweet I follow. Day. And I saw her post about the episode that she did with you. And I listened to that episode and went, this is amazing. And then I messaged you. I mean, that's all I need in life. That's my favorite <laughs> thing. I, I'm, that's a whole, that's like, that's a rabbit hole I can go down. I love her so much. She's Ugh. great. She's a true, true delight. And just like, we're like, we have the same birthday. So I always like girl crush on her even more. I'm like, she's just like the kindest, most giving person. And so, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, today we are discussing representation in media, its effects on society and the way we form opinions of people different from us and the need for consciousness and accurate diversity. And I could not be more excited because hello. (laughs) Hello. Welcome. welcome. Um, I, so this is my, this is what I did for my research in grad school. I was in my last year of grad school when the pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. like, Spring 2020, we had the pandemic and then like we have all of the Black Lives Matter resurgence. And I was kind of already thinking about theater criticism and thinking about like, how can I translate all of the talking about theater that I do with my friends into a project? Um, But I hadn't really figured out what I wanted to focus on yet. And then we had all of this redirecting that we were like the whole world was doing at once. Um, And specifically the theater community was like, really focusing on how do we redirect energy to diversity and equity work. Mm -hmm. And people like didn't really know where to start with it or what the answers were. And I was like, cool, that's a conversation I can get into. Um, But, you know, I, I'm an able-bodied white woman and my neurodiversity and my queerness are pretty easy to mask if I'm trying. Um, So I'm not facing outright discrimination all the time, but it's, I think it's so important to use the privilege that we have to elevate the underrepresented voices around us. Um, and like living in London, London is a very rich city. It's a pretty privileged city. Um, and there's, it was great to see people acknowledge that there was work to be done um, and start really trying to put together the teams to do that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. I was going to say like, that's such a fascinating topic. One, because representation in all facets for sure. But I grew up in Connecticut, which is right outside of New York. So I went to Broadway shows all the time. I grew up in a town where we had a really good like theater program from like the time I was in middle school through high school, local colleges. Um, Yale is right there. So like I, I was super privileged and lucky to be able to have access to theater and access to a really good school system that like taught me Shakespeare in different forms of languages and different types of books. And so, you know, going through and always looking for representation for myself, but, you know, maybe not seeing it portrayed as someone who looked like me, but just like identifying with the woman in in a play, like, I don't know what it was and not to nerd out, but about the scarlet letter that just like, my freshman year of high school, I was just like obsessed with that whole, like that whole section of, of theater. Like we acted it out. It was in, it was actually in theater class, which I loved. Um, but we did the play version. We acted it out. We talked about it. And I was just like, oh my God, like the, the way I just like, I think for so long, like when I first read it, um, I think her name was Hester Prynne, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, look at that br- back of the brain memory. Um <laughs> But I just remember identifying with her so much. And I think it's because when I first read it, I read her as a black woman, knowing now that she is white. But like when I first I read her through the lens of a black woman because of what black women had faced so long in this country and the way that they treated her in that book. I just I think that was my representation of her, her her like being this sort of exiled person that everyone blamed for their crap. And I, and I, I don't know, my, my little young 14 year old brain was like, I'm going to make her black so I can understand this more. Um, and it was just such a fascinating read through for me because it was just like, 
I didn't see a lot of representation in theater. I mean, there's like the color purple and all that sort of stuff, but it wasn't like, oh, sorry, no, Raisin in the Sun. That was one of the, another one that I really loved. Um, but that, that, like, those were the only couple of plays I knew that had Black people. And those are plays specifically about, like, about being Black. It's mm-hmm. like, there's so often we see stories that are, like, about marginalized groups that are, like, Black people, the stories are about slavery or, like, cop violence and oh, for gay people. Always it, trauma. Always trauma. It's always trauma. Yeah. It, it's always trauma with gay always. people. It's like coming out to your homophobic family, like Be- becoming homeless, being exiled, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, it's always, yeah. Which like, great. Those are stories that are relevant, but they don't need to be the only stories that we tell. And okay. So here's my Shakespeare nerdiness about representation okay. in media. Shakespeare is like the playwright that we play with when we're trying new stuff because we've been doing his place for 400 years and we're always trying to do something new. Like the one summer that I was living in London, there were like four different productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream on at the same time. And they were all wildly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reason we use Shakespeare to play with is that the writing is very ambiguous in terms of specifics about characters. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really tell us what characters look like. He like, we know the genders of the characters, but like, even then we can play with that yeah, even then. um even then and there's so much ambiguity there's an oxford scholar named emma smith who i love who writes about this but the ambiguity is what shakespeare, makes shakespeare accessible it is like it what is what allows everybody to read themselves into those characters and what you just said about reading your reading a black woman like seeing yourself in a black woman in a scarlet letter is exactly it like we want to be able to see ourselves in all kinds of media and that, that the, like the best kinds of representation are the things that like, not only allow you to feel seen, but allow everybody to read that and relate to it in their own way. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's also like, I'm sitting and thinking about like Shakespeare and Shakespeare is very much like soap opera, TV drama, reality TV, like just stuff like that doesn't happen typically. Yeah. Like, if you think about like the queen sleeping with the prince or like the prince killing his father and you're just like, wait, what? And so it's just also that I think it's just like, I always think, I always also look at, at Shakespeare like through a queer lens of just like the level of drama, which I know is like ridiculous, so but true. it's like, it's no, like, it's how like- I look at it. I'm like, the fact that all this stuff is happening, I'm like, what? Nowadays, like this would be on Bravo, right? Like some like, major network would pick it up like CW and like completely like blow it out of the water. Like that's, I think that's why I love Shakespeare just because like this far removed level of drama that is just so vastly entertaining for me. But like you're saying the ambiguity of, of things that are just going to like give you the option to see yourself and to quickly backtrack to like gay stories. Like one of my favorite play, first of all, theater in general, I could nerd out about for ridiculous days. Um, but I am currently, I was just re-listening to Rent when I was driving home from my road trip because obviously. Obviously. And obviously. Um, first of all, that play. I have chills thinking about it always. It's fine. I'm not going to cry right now while we record. Um, <laughs> but I think about it because I worked at an organization that served queer youth and their children. And so I did fundraising. So I mostly met with like donors, but a lot of, you know, the kid, I didn't work with the kids directly, but I would be the ones like to greet them and maybe like talk to their parents when they're waiting, waiting for appointments, blah, blah, blah. 
And so the amount of conversations I would have like doing speaking engagements or going out and talking about the work we did with parents as a queer person who came out, I didn't come out until I was 26. Um, I came out to a very religious family who's still very accepting. And I'm very lucky and fortunate that like my godfather's a pastor. He's like, I don't care. I just want you to find someone who loves you, which is a privilege in and of itself. But having to unpack and dismantle the stories of gayness for parents. And, you know, like I told, I tell them, like, I didn't come out until I was 26, but I was able to absorb and be enthralled so much in gay culture because my best friend who I've known since I was 12 was gay. So when he came out, I was like, I was there with him through the whole process. Like he went off, we're two years apart. So like we read books, he would go off to college and like we were talking about his life, obviously. So being able to not only have, you know, tangentially lived experience, but then also lived experience and then being able to see how gay folks are represented in the media um, was, was really helpful for me to talk to parents. Cause it was like, you know, nowadays, you know, there's still really bad things that happen to gay kids. Sure. Like Matthew Shepard is still a very scary story for a lot of parents, which like, we still live in a very scary place, but being able to dismantle the fact around, like, you know, you can change the trajectory of your child's life because a lot of queer kids end up homeless because parents would accept them. If you accept your child, that's like one thing you can change. Um, talking about the AIDS epidemic and talking to parents, like if your child is now becoming sexually active, there's PrEP, there's PEP, there's condoms, like there's all these different things. And, you know, also like if a person who is diagnosed with AIDS or HIV, it's not a death warrant like it used to be. We have, we have come so far in science and in medical um, feats. And so I think it's also that representation of being able to have known and seen the pieces of art and literature that were out there during the time when I was coming up to be able to talk to parents now and kind of be like, that doesn't have to be the story that we write for your child. Yeah. I, that's, I, that's the other part of representation in media is that it's so important to see stories about people that are not like us Mm -hmm. and to see them authentically represented. Cause if like, if you live somewhere where you've never met a gay person and the only experience you have of gay people is like a poor representation on TV, Mm -hmm like that's going to completely affect how you perceive them. Authentic representation is like, it teaches other people who we are as much as it shows us that we're not alone. Yeah. I think it's also interesting now. So obviously I, I watched the L word because it's all we had at the time. Um, the original L word, which if y'all could go, go back and don't go back, but maybe also go back. It was problematic. If you look at it through the lens of now, um, but it was all we had at the time. So we we hold a certain level of nostalgia for it. Um, but I, I think about that too, of like, I think about all the queer shows I saw, like there was L Word, there was Queer as Folk, there were, you know, Queer Eye for the straight guy when that first came out. Um, there was a Black queer show called Noah's Ark, which was drama. Um, but uh, yeah, but I, like you're saying, authentic representation and, and being able to see yourself and and also, I think, separate the art from the real life, like remembering that these are just productions we're putting on. And, you know, there's folks who work on these shows who maybe have lived experience. But I think that's also the thing, too. And I see this right now with Insecure about to come back and me being emotionally unprepared for the final season. Um, but seeing how I was reading an article, I think, in Vogue um, with Issa Rae, who created the show and her talking about the fact that so many people love insecure is because it's just a normal representation of blackness. It is just young 20, 30 something year old black people growing up being messy. And I think that was the first time I've ever seen, aside from maybe 
there are a couple other shows, but I think through this lens of like a now time of just like people trying to figure out their lives in a way that is not traumatic. Like there's never been like a police issue on Insecure. There's never been like all this like ridiculous sort of drama that happens a lot with like black films. Um, obviously it's a, it's a now, if you think of it like now as a period piece, it's a period piece of, you know, tw- the early 21st or like mid 21st century, whatever time is. Um, and so we have technology and all this different stuff. So it's it just, it's just a different, but I think that's why it is so well-received and so well-loved is because it's just, it just is. And, you, you know, I think about this a lot right now with like, I've never watched Sex in the City. I've seen the movie, but I've never watched the show. Um, but just knowing that, just looking at the four main characters and being critical of the fact that it is four white women who one of them apparently works, Carrie works at a magazine, but like affords this very wealthy apartment. And I'm like, also, I feel like we never see black people anywhere near this show. So I don't know. I can tangent about representation in TV for hours. So here we are. <laughs> Me too. I don't know if it's a tangent though. It's just the topic. Sure. It's all relevant. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it was, it's like I'm, the thought that just came into my mind was like so many TV shows are set in New York and it's all white people with like exorbitantly large apartments they definitely can't afford uh-huh. and you don't see any diversity. And New York is like this wildly diverse city. Uh huh. Why are we just looking at white, like 20 something white people? Yeah. But that I think, but then my DEI soapbox comes out and I'm like, well, that's the white privilege of it all. Of like, you can surround yourself with people you want to see all the time if you want to. And it, like Sex in the City is mm-hmm. a perfect example of that for me. And I'll be like, there's black people on the show. Great. There's gay people on the show. I know that. But if we look at it, just like just the four main characters alone, I'm like, no, none of them have a close black friend. <laughs> there's right. no, like, please, please. Right. And, and none of those other characters are getting their real stories told in that right. story. Like th- that show is about these four white women. And that's like, those are the only characters that we actually delve that deep into. Right. So it's not the same thing. But I think people, people I hear all the time are like, but there's a gay character. And I'm like, it's a token gay character. And uh-huh. he's just a stereotype. Yep. It doesn't yep. count. Like I want to see a person, not a collection of stereotypes that you think is funny. Yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah, because now I'm going through my brain of like, what representation of, of Black TV, like Black characters on TV did I see? And actually, I saw a lot of it. And I think, it's, you know, it's coming, I was born in 90. So between, you know, the early 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, mid, like through now, I've seen so much TV. To be fair, my parents were 25 when they had me. So I feel like I watch a lot of TV with them, but I'm thinking like a different world, Cosby show, living single, which we need to take a quick pause. The people who wrote Friends legitimately ripped off living single. So let's just, have you ever seen living single? No, but I believe you. Okay. So living single is about three black women and three black men. Nope. Four black women and two black men. It was six friends. Yeah. Four black women, two black men living in New York. One of them is a lawyer. It has Queen Latifah in it. It has the girl from Facts of Life in it, Kim Fields, a lot of like really great black actors. And it's just it's it was literally the premise of of Friends, like Friends ripped it off, like Friends came around and Living Single got taken off the air. Um, Classic white privilege of, oh, that's a good idea. We're going to take it and we're going to be the really successful show. Yeah. And then and then a couple maybe like a couple years ago, 10 years ago. Um, the guy who played Ross was like, you know, I would love to see Friends 
you know, rebooted through like, but like with Asian people. And I was like, you literally stole this from black people. Yes. Uh, yeah. God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, circling background to New York and Shakespeare yeah. and representation. Um, my like go-to example of amazing representation through Shakespeare is Kenny Leon's 2016 production of Much Ado About Nothing from Shakespeare in the Park. Oh. It is the production. First of all, Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite Shakespeare play. I'll watch it all day long. Oh. And this production is the best production I've ever seen. It was so they did it in 2016. They set it in 2020 in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh. And they predicted all the protests. They predicted Stacey Abrams being super relevant, like super in it and relevant in politics in 2020. Um, I know, right? Uh, And it's an all black cast and it is a celebration of black culture and like questioning of what it is to be black in America using Shakespeare's text. It's so good. I'm excited. Like it's on, it's on PBS. Um, I think you have to have a WETA passport account, which is like involves donating $5 to WETA. Um, but it is so good. I'm um, right now I'm teaching middle school drama and I'm showing this production to my eighth graders and they're so <laughs> into it. They're so into it. I'm so it's jealous. <laughs> I, um, it, I remember watching the show and going, Oh my God. Like the, like this is, this is the example of how you use Shakespeare's text to tell your own story because that like, it is still much to do about nothing. It's still Beatrice and Benedict have all their banter and their friends are tricking them into falling in love. And we see like the exactly the same story that plays out in every other production, but it is also so clearly also about being black in America. And you see the culture, like in the music, in how they move, in in the intonation, and in how they use the language, um, it's there is so there's so much work that went into that production into making it their own. Um, and I talked about it. My one of my oldest friends is a black woman. She and I grew up together, and I talked about this production with her, and she was like, "Did they not? They didn't change the script to like add all of those cousins and cousins in because that's how my family talks to each other." And I was like, "No, they just took that from Shakespeare and made it their own." It's, I could talk about it all day. It's such a good show, and it's accessible because it's yeah. like it all sounds modern, so it doesn't. I like I told these kids we're gonna watch some Shakespeare, and they were all like, "No." <laughs> boring class days and then like five within five minutes they were like okay no this is great yeah. like I stop after every scene and they can tell me what the conversation was Ugh. Shakespeare's cool people I promise just give it a, give it a minute oh. Oh, yeah that, that it's just yeah like I I first of all I need to go find that immediately because yes I just again representation like if I was I mean I love Shakespeare now but imagine if I could have seen someone who looked like me doing Shakespeare and I think like the only modernization of Shakespeare I've ever seen before is the Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio I mean if you really think about it um she's the man with Amanda Bynes is based on Twelfth Night if I'm not mistaken it is so I was like technically I guess it's fine but yeah but yeah, to, to go in and see a production of Shakespeare that's not a group of old white men in roughs 
Yeah. Um, and London is great for that. Like London is generally ahead of mm. certainly the East Coast in terms of like being modern and doing and doing something like that with theater. Um, Simon Godwin, who is the now the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theater in D.C., used to t- direct at the National Theater in London all the time. And he did a production of Twelfth Night in 2017 that is the queerest piece of theater I've ever seen. <laughs> And it like he he gender swaps some characters. Do you know you know Twelfth Night the mm-hmm. the play? For anyone who doesn't, there's a character named Malvolio who's like this very stuffy butler, and he's in love with um, his mistress, the lady of the house, Olivia. And they gender swapped Malvolio to Malvolia, and so now we have this kind of one sided lesbian romance in this show. Not to mention all the other queer stuff that's happening yep. that's already in the text. No. Um, and Malvolia, because Malvolia is like not a very nice person, there's a bunch of other characters who play a trick on him. And when they, in this production, they were very conscious about making sure that that trick was not them being homophobic. Mm-hmm. It is very clear that they don't give a shit that Malvolia is a woman who's in love with the woman. They just think she's an asshole. Yeah. And, and every character in that play, there's a, like, there's, um, one of the main character, Viola, is a woman who dresses up as a man for most of the play mm-hmm. and in disguise. So there's a lot of gender stuff going on anyway. But to see that production where like nobody gave a shit about who anybody's gender was, was amazing. And that's like, that's the kind of theater I want to be seeing because everyone's going to go see Shakespeare. We all know Shakespeare. It's a big audience draw. So do something new with it. It doesn't need to be like, we've set Hamlet in an office this time. Like, Give me an interesting ca- cast yeah. of characters. Yeah. Make it more drama, people. Like, uh, I love that <laughs> so much. Like, now I'm like, because so I've never been to London, but I feel such a draw to be there constantly. Like, I think about London more than I probably should, like constantly. Um, one of my best friends just moved there for a job. She's loving it. I'm very jealous. We can't go into it right now. Um, but she, you know, she works for a nonprofit that does theater um, so now like, being able to talk about her even more about theater and like nerd out and like who she's working with and all these different things, but also she's black. And so for us to be talking about theater, I think is already like a quote unquote, like push against the norm. Like I think a lot of people always typecast. I mean, so much of theater, like we even again, soapbox right now, one of my favorite shows of all time is the flash on CW. It's a big deal big comic book nerd um but so Candace Patton has been playing Iris since the first season they're now going into season eight and people are still pissed that she is black still still this show's been on since like 2014 I'm like you guys they're not gonna like swap her out it's she's she's here um also like it's it it does what why is it hurting you it doesn't matter correct it it doesn't it's not hurting anything for them to have changed that like when they um were doing Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and the oh, Hermione was black. Hermione. Hermione was black, and people are still mad about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it, 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 it literally doesn't matter. Also, even, like, even pro- sorry, even problematic. J.K. Rowling said she's like, I never said Hermione was black. She's like, I never once mentioned. She's like, Hermione only had curly hair. It was the only thing I ever really said about the way she looked. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, never that's... said what her skin color was. Thanks, J.K. You're you're problematic in many ways, but at least this was not one of yeah, them. Yeah, this was the one time. Yeah, the one time. Yeah, and it's just. Ugh. It's so, 
it's so much because like a white person has never had to work to see themselves anywhere. Say that again. (laughs) You have no white person has ever had to work (laughs) to see themselves anywhere. Like I have never, ever had to go, oh, this isn't, I don't see myself on this stage. Like I have to work to find something where I don't see myself. And it's so like, like this all black production of Much Ado, it's fascinating and exciting to see something that's not about me because everything is already about white people. And I like, oh, sorry that you don't get to see yourself on stage, but like learn about somebody other than you. For one time. It's, it's like the minute it isn't centered, centered around whiteness, it's like not quote, quote, unquote, not as good. I'm like, actually, I would way more prefer to see like a cast of like way more diverse folks. Like if it, if it was just if every cast was as diverse as like we're trying to make everything now, I would just probably see it more. It just like you're saying, it just adds yeah. more depth to things like. Yes. Yeah. And, and everybody bringing their own background and their own experiences creates such a like so much more depth to everything it's like the only the only thing it's gonna do is make it better sorry your butt hurt but like get over it oh yeah I mean also like just different body types too like I like to go back and I'm gonna stop ragging on sex in the city I'm sure it's a fine show all you people love it um but also like thin and white like I am, and I think that's why I love living single so much. It was like, it was different black women with different black skin tones, with different hair, with different body types. And it was just, I mean, I feel like that's all black television. Like live, like I think about family matters and, you know, um, a different world. Like it was just all these different black women, specifically body types and skin tones and hair styles and just seeing the validation that all of it was beautiful. And like, I think when we, I know when we don't add representation, we're doing such a disservice to folks. It's just because now one of my best friends, Shelby, she loves Hallmark movies. And so last year Hallmark did like a really great job of like adding diversity and like different, you know, races. And it was, there's a lot of like queer, there was a, there was a whole movie about like a gay man falling in love with another man for Christmas. Like, Oh my God, look at um but I think about that too of like we have also sat with shows and you know we've been doing a lot of work the last year specifically after you know stuff with Black Lives Matter and she'll watch her show and call me she's like I really like this show but then I realized they use the black girl as the funny friend and she like didn't even have her own storyline and that's not right I was like thank you so much like it's just it's just I think everyone's starting to really pay attention like the bullshit of it all and I also am currently reading or listening to Gabrielle Union's book, her second memoir of We're Gonna Need Something Stronger, which I fucking love Gabrielle Union. She was a representation I always had. I, Gabrielle Union, if you get this, I love you. We need to be friends forever. Um, but I'm reading her book right now. And in one chapter, she writes a letter to Isis, who is the character she played in Bring It On. And she talks about how she really played that character safe because she knew Isis couldn't be angry because then she would have been labeled the angry black woman, even though they did steal her cheers and raised money and got all these profits and opportunities that her squad didn't get. Um, she talked about how the, she had to make up a whole backstory in her head about Isis because the black characters in that story didn't have any, like all the white actors have backstories and last names. None of the black characters had last names on the call sheets ever or in the movie. Y'all, 
truly. Um, but then she talks about how, you know, there was a Buzzfeed quiz or article about like top 10 villains and ISIS is on it. And she's like, ISIS didn't do anything wrong in that whole movie except for acts for what was hers and the audacity yeah. of a black woman to do that. I was like, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is so much stereotyping that goes on. Like you see the sassy gay best friend, mm-hmm. the funny black best friend, um, the nurturing one, like the support one. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yep. And it, like, you just, you see it all the time. And it, I think generally that's worse on screen. Like it's worse in TV and film than it is on stage, mm. but it's still everywhere. And, and, you know, we have all of these associations that we've grown up with. Like we have visual associations that we've made because of what we've been seeing on TV our whole lives. So it's really hard for an audience to depart from those, but we start departing from them by seeing them not typecast in those same things over and over again. One of the other things that I talked a lot about in my thesis was blind casting versus conscious casting. Mm. We've been using this term blind casting as like, oh, I don't look at race. I don't like, I don't look at gender. I'm just going to cast an actor, which like on paper is a good intention but it ends up with this like kind of still discriminatory effect of like you didn't consider how this is gonna look to the audience you didn't consider how the audience is gonna take this character Mm -hmm. in um like you know in an ideal world we're all like free of our visual associations and we have a very equal society and then it's not a problem and we like we don't have to worry about it but we don't live in that society so we mm-hmm. do have to worry about it right and co- conscious casting is like is the way that i talk about it of what we need to be doing is that you you can you can go into a casting room and say we're just finding the best actor for the role we don't care what race or gender or body shape or ability or anything but then once you find that actor you have to go who is this person and what are all of what's all their background and how are they bringing that like what are they, they're bringing something specific in their experience to the table. We're going to take that into account. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's uh, the example that I use. I read an article um, about a, the Arthur Miller, Arthur Miller. I think it's Arthur Miller play all my sons um, with they had, there's a production that had cast a black actor playing a character that's written as white, which like in theory would be fine, except that this production didn't address how that would change things in a story set in 1940s America in the Mm -hmm. South. Mm -hmm. And it was just super distracting for every black person in the audience to be like, I'm sorry. No, this does not scan. Like you could do that, but you have to then figure out like, how are you going to, how are you going to address that? Even non-verbally, like Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to change the script, but you have to see like, is there some tension between these neighbors? Like, is there some unspoken, like we're being polite, but we don't think you belong here. Like mm-hmm. what, what, if you can take into account all of the things that your each actor is bringing, that's conscious casting Yeah. to go, this is how it affects the story that we're telling. And then you're not, you're not only bringing accurate representation to the table, but you're, you are allowing each of your actors to authentically represent themselves. Yeah. and tell their own story on, on stage or on screen. Yeah, that makes me think of the Hamilton kerfuffle of the cast being all people of color 
and like not addressing racism and slavery really like yeah there's one part um when Hamilton addresses Jackson no yes one of whoever it is about their their it's like one of their like their the battle scenes of like the rap battles in the courtroom oh it's Jefferson Jefferson thank you like oh my god I know it was a J um and him talking about basically like you you it's it's the rap it's line like you don't place for labor like that whole situation of like we know how the south is wealthy it's like because y'all don't have to pay your people and that's I think that's the only part in the whole production where we actually hear them talking about slavery I'm like cool <laughs> thank you right. so much like right yeah. like and I I think somewhere there's an interview with Lynn manuel Miranda talking about this um and I, I like I, I get that they were like we only have two and a half hours like there's only so much we can address Fine. but but and it, it was clearly a conscious choice to make that cast all people of color right. and to say we're telling the story of of historically mostly white people and doing it through a cast of, of color but I'm, there's gotta be there's gotta be like nope. a little more than that no nope. um yeah and and also like that that then people's response was well we should recast it with all white people nope this rapping show with all white people no 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 no, thank you miss the mark no 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 (laughs) also like to take a piece of art that was created for people of color and say well the solution for them not doing like the perfect job creating the show is for us to recast it with white people and take that away no no. Like that's not that's not helpful either. White it's, saviorism serves no one. Bye, <laughs> bye. It's it's so tricky because there isn't like a clear cut right answer. It is yeah. completely situation by situation, which is so tough because people want a clear cut right answer. They want to know like what's right and what's wrong, and then they can stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And this isn't something you get to stop thinking about. Like that's being an ally is thinking about it all the time. All the time yeah yeah and like now that DEI is a part of my full-time job there are just so many conversations I'm having about accessibility in the fact of like are we making it one understandable whatever we're doing are making it accessible are we subtitling things are we you know adding in you know adding in captions are we making sure the colors we're using aren't you know going to be hard for people who are blind of or or have difficulty seeing but yeah I think about that too just like I think of theater and tv production as like accessibility like is this a show that can be for everyone and I don't know I don't know why this is the show I'm thinking about like a show for everyone is Moesha because I have I have had conversations with friends who grew up in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, who are white, who loved Moesha. And I was like, oh, like, let's talk about this. Like, well, first of all, like, she was like one of the first black girls I saw who had a two-parent household who were doing well, who, you know, all the kids had the same parents who, you know, she had braids, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a part of her personality. It was just like, she wore braids. Um, And then she had two black friends who, yes, Kim was, quote unquote not thin but also like was well who was the funny friend but that wasn't why they were friends and that wasn't like Kim's old shtick and you know Moesha was dating black men and it, it, so I always think about that too like 
the the way that there can be a show where white people don't see themselves and still love it. And, you know, same with Insecure. I have a really good friend, Corinne, who is white. And she's like, I think she might be more obsessed with Insecure than I am, if that's pop- if that's possible. Um, but we talk about it, she's like, oh my God, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. Um, but yeah, I just think, I think it's interesting when you make the default people of color instead, because for so long and ha- the default has been white, but the way that, you know, for so long, people of color had to see themselves in TV and art and now it kind of being flipped on its head. And you have this knowing here from Whippy Goldberg that I freaking love. And you said that she talks about seeing, seeing, like Whippy Goldberg also talks about her seeing on TV when she was nine and cheering about seeing a black lady playing a character who wasn't a maid and how she knew from that moment that she could be anything that she wanted to be and how that is literally it. Like just the representation of like not seeing this person typecast as a servant or a slave or a person in jail or a person dealing with a drug addiction or, you know, all these sort of tropes that black people, people of color are typically sort of pigeonholed into. Like we see gangsters and people who are crips and bloods and all these different things. I'm just like, can't they just like live? Like, can't they like work at the bank? And, yeah. <laughs> and at the soup kitchen and just like have a normal life. Yeah, that, that quote is about um, Nichelle Nichols, who originated the role of Uhura on Star Trek. And there's another quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She, so this actress was planning on leaving Star Trek and told Dr. King about it. And he immediately said, you can't leave. Do you understand? This is not a black role. This is not a female role. It can be filled by a woman of any color, a man of any color. This is a unique role and a unique point in time that breathes the life of what we are marching for, equality. Like, we want to see people. We don't want to see stereotypes. Like, I don't want to see any more white women who are like, I mean, any stereotype. I don't want to see any more bisexual stereotypes of people who are like promiscuous Mm -hmm. or like, just show me a person in anything. I just want to see a person and I want to see a well-rounded person who's just living their life. Yeah, truly, truly. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and chatting with me about this. Also, I need to make a quick note for everyone. I send a run of show and the amount of notes that you put in here is my favorite thing right now. <laughs> There's, I, I made like nine pages of notes. I need everyone to know. That's who I am. I love this so much. Um, is there anything you want to plug? I'll be sure to like list all your social media in here for sure. But anything you want to plug before we start wrapping up? Sure. Well, I mean, I'll plug my own podcast, which is what Ooh. I created for my thesis. Um, it's called And Then She Said. It's on Spotify. Um, And it's actually, it's very similar to this exact premise of I invite guests on to tell me about um, a piece of media that made them feel represented. And then we use that as a larger, just for like gateway to larger discussion around representation. Um, And there's there's an accompanying website called andthenshesaid.co.uk, which has some essays on representation in media. And then it has a series of personal essays that I've done. I, this is such grad school pretension. I call the website the antithesis to the podcast. Um, Cause on the podcast, I asked my guests to be very vulnerable sharing their stuff with me. Um, and so on the website, I allow myself to be that vulnerable and share mm-hmm. things about my own experience. Um, there, you know, so there's a lot of difficult subjects on there, but I think it's important to 
not only like reduce the stigma around things like mental health and eating disorders and all that stuff, but it also like helps people feel less alone to go, oh, I see someone else who has experienced that. I love that. I love that. I'm going to obviously listen to it. This going to go add it to the feed. So you do it to, it is, to people. It is a new podcast. There are truly seven episodes. We love a new beginning. Listen, I'm <laughs> before you know it, it'll be two years, which I'm coming up on two years next week, yes. which is freaking wild. Two years of recording. Oh my God. So happy new baby to you because <laughs> thank you and happy two years to you oh my gosh I have a toddler <laughs> and, <laughs> the let terrible t- shoes. and let me tell you this they are really just that we have we, have, we could talk offline um it's a joy for sure but it's also so much work and I don't think people oh. understand that I'm like so true that's why there's seven episodes <laughs> Ellie's like, I have seven out right now. Be grateful. I'm like, yes, <laughs> I get it. I always tell people it's like getting a kid ready for school in the morning. Like I used to nanny. I said, be like having a podcast, like getting a child ready in the morning. Like you get them dressed and they spilled water on you. So to go and change, like, it's just never ending. And like, you think it's crazy. Nope. Oh, wait. Anyway, um, as you may know, at the end of every episode, I like to end with a palate cleanser, although this has been a very fun episode. Um, which is, I ask a question, what is the best advice you were ever given? Or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Um, the answer to this question is give yourself permission to fail. Uh, my mom taught theater, um, all through my life and for my whole life, she's had those words up in the back of her classroom behind the audience where you can see them from the stage. Um, like in theater, you can't, you can't succeed unless you fail. That's how you figure out what, what doesn't work, which helps you figure out what does work. And if you don't like give yourself that freedom, you're not going to be able to like really let go and, and stand up on stage and do what you need to do. Um, and I think that's true outside of theater. Like if you're too worried about doing things perfectly the first time you get paralyzed and you get too stuck to start. Um, and I think when I was a kid, kind of still, but like definitely as a kid, I felt like that freedom to fail applied to everyone besides me. Mm. And I still had to succeed on the first try. Um, and I would go tell my younger self that she's allowed to fail too. Like, you can fail in funny ways, in ways that just crash and burn, in unremarkable ways. Um, but the, 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 the space and, and patience that I hold for other people applies to me too. That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website, theteawithbriepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mama Duke for the theme music, and I will talk to y'all next week. Bye.